This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Marco Tinello, lecturer of Japanese history at Hosei University and Waseda University. Dr. Tinello is the author in English of The Rikyuan Embassies to Edo, Seen from the Shuti Royal Government's Perspective, published in Imagined Okinawa, Challenge from Time and Space, and in Japanese, Sekaishi Karamita Ryukyu Shobun, published by Gajumaru Shorin in 2017. Dr. Tinello, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. In your publications, you've looked at the Meiji transition primarily from the perspective of embassies from the Ryukyuan kingdoms to the Tokugawa Bakufu. And you recently published this book, Sekai Karamita Ryukyu Shobun. Yes. Now, this is one of those words that's tough to translate into English. I think maybe the disposition, the, the handling of might be the best translation. So can you tell us, what do you mean by this when you talk about the Ryukyu Shobun? And how does this Meiji transition look when we look at it from this perspective of the Ryukyus? Oh, yes. Thank you so much for this interesting question. In my research, the Ryukyu Shobun refers to the process by which the Meiji government annexed the Ryukyu kingdom between 1872 and 1879. I argue that this process can best be understood by investigating its preconditions or its antecedents in the Bakumatsu era. And I show that, in particular, following uh, negotiations with Commodore Perry, the Bakufu recognized the importance of claiming Japanese control over the Ryukyus. So my study, in some way, frames uh, Japan's 1879 incorporation of the Ryukyu across uh, a larger span of time than previous studies, uh, beginning with the events in the 1840s. It is well known that the Bakufu used the Korean and the Ryukyuan embassies to increase its authority and prestige uh, within uh, Japan. However, if we see in detail the shogunate's uh, documents related to the Bakumatsu period, we can see that the Bakufu changed its understanding, its vision of the Ryukyuan embassies. Especially after the negotiations with Perry, the Westerners began to ask the shogunate, so what are the real relations between Japan and Ryukyu? And from that point on, any time the shogunate, during internal debate or during its uh, negotiations with Westerners, it began to use the Ryukyu embassies to Japan as a proof or as a piece of evidence in order to show that Ryukyu was subordinate. To Japan. So traditionally, the Bakufu only considered these embassies as a tool, as a means in order to increase its authority. But after the arrival of the Westerners in Japan, we can see a shift, a change in its interpretation, in its vision, and also in its usage of these diplomatic ceremonies. You're talking about these embassies from Ryukyu. How many embassies and how often do they come and what were these embassies like? Yes, uh, we have 18 uh, embassies from uh, 1634 uh, until 1850. And they were dispatched whenever a new Tokugawa shogun was appointed, and those embassies were called congratulatory embassies. And then we have embassies of gratitude whenever a new uh, Ryukyuan king was enthroned. 
if we make a comparison with the, with the Korean embassies, the Korean embassies were only dispatched whenever a new Tokugawa shogun was appointed. So there is a, already a big difference uh, between the two uh, missions. In fact, whenever a new Ryukyuan king was enthroned, in some way he had to say thanks to the uh, Tokugawa shogun who had allowed his uh, enthronement. So from this kind of uh, rituals, we can see that Rikyu was uh, uh, subordinate to Japan, both to the uh, Tokugawa shogunate and to uh, the Satsuma domain, to the Shimazu family. And uh, these embassies, usually they were constituted about uh, 100 people. So if we compare with the Koreans who were constituted about 400 uh, people. And they went to Satsuma, then they stayed there three months to prepare final preparation for the embassy. And then they went to with the Satsuma uh, boats to Osaka and then by procession to uh, Edo. It took in general one year to go and uh, come back to and another big difference with the Korean embassy, it is that the economic burden was paid by the Rikyuans, the Satsuma, and uh, a lesser burden was for the, for the uh, Shogunate. So most of the economic burden was especially paid by uh, Rikyu and, uh, and uh, Satsuma. And from a political uh, point of view, they were very, very important. For the Bakfu, as I mentioned before, but also for Satsuma, Satsuma through this embassy could uh, uh, show to everybody that uh, it was controlling a foreign kingdom. And then I would like to add another important aspect that it is little known, but these embassies were important also for uh, Ryukyu. One example, in Ryukyu well, we have a special uh, post, a special uh, position, uh, which was called Tabiyaku. Tabiyaku means to go on a mission within the domain, for example, for from uh, Naha or Shuri to Miyako, Yayama Island, this was uh, a Tabiyaku mission, or also to go to Satsuma, this was another mission, or to go to Edo. And the most important duty for a Ryukyuan official in order to serve his skin, it was to go on a mission to China. And usually we have this pattern. Before, at the beginning, an official went to, for example, on uh, Yayama or uh, Miyako, or to another island within the kingdom, then he went to Satsuman, then to Edo, and then as a final appointment, as the most, the utmost achievement of his career, he was sent to China as uh, an official, a formal uh, envoy. So also for the Ryukyuan bureaucratic system, it was very, very important to send, to dispatch these embassies to Edo. But then also for, uh, from a, a cultural point of view, through these embassies, the Ryukyuan government could display the high refinement achieved uh, by Ryukyu to Edo through the sending, the dispatching of very uh, talented and uh, cultural, very talented and voice. Uh, so it, it was very, very important from a, a cultural, a cultural uh, point of view to appear in Japan as a very refined kingdom, a culture, a, a culture which was very, very close to the Chinese culture. And then from a political point of view, it was thanks to these embassies and uh, as well as to the embassies dispatched to Beijing, that Ryukyu was able to maintain a special limited autonomy between these formidable neighbors. So these embassies, from a point of view, were a tripartite power relationship uh, important for uh, the partners involved. You mentioned how this was important for the Ryukyuan kingdom and that it was also important for the Bakufu. So can you elaborate on what was the importance of these embassies for the Tokugawa Bakufu? Yes, uh, it, they were very important for the uh, legitimation for the of the Tokugawa shogunate at the beginning 
of the 17th uh, century. But then, especially for the prestige of the shogunate, at a certain point in early 18th century, the Baku said, we do not need these embassies. And then the Satsuma said, no, these embassies are very, very important because they are dispatched by uh, the Rikuan king, who is a retainer of the shogunate. So it's very, very important for the shogunate. From that point, so we are at the beginning of the 18th century, the shogunate declared, so it, it becomes clear from the documents, that it began to see these embassies as a, a means to increase its prestige in uh, Japan. And, um, and in fact, from the 18th century, uh, the shogunate began to uh, welcome warmly these uh, embassies in a very similar way to the uh, Korean ones. Also, if we see the termination of the Korean embassies, the last Korean embassy went to Edo in uh, 1764, and the last to Japan, it was in 1811. So only uh, in the Bakumatsu, we have only Ryukina embassies until uh, the 1850, but then we have uh, three embassies uh, that there were planned, but that for different reasons during from the 1860s and the 1860s they were um, in the end uh, postponed and then terminated. So from the Bakufu's perspective these embassies were very very important until the end. But then in the 1860s we have uh, um, the arrival of the Westerners in Japan and uh, I mean in Edo and in Yokohama. So if at that point a Ryukyun embassy arrived in Edo, uh, it would have been seen by the Westerners, and these Westerners might have told the Chinese about, uh, about these embassies in Japan. So in the 1860s, we can say that the dispatch of these embassies became a delicate problem for, for the shogunate. In fact, from my point of view, at that point, from the Bakfus, it was not important so much to receive Rikyun a new Rikyun embassy, but it became very, very important to prove that through the dispatch of the previous embassies, it could demonstrate Western powers that Rikyun was subordinate to Japan, because in the past it had been, it had uh, dispatched a number of uh, missions to Edo. So there was a shift through which the shogunate began to see its uh, diplomacy, its foreign diplomacy with the neighbors. One group that we haven't talked about so far regarding the importance of these embassies is the domain of Satsuma. Yes. And you were saying before that Satsuma is kind of the go-between between the Ryukyuan kingdom and Edo. So is Satsuma using these embassies as a way to elevate its own position vis-a-vis -vis the Bakufu? Oh, yes, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Bakufu and also vis-a-vis -vis the other powerful lords. It was Satsuma that uh, in the first place asked the shogunate to be allowed to uh, accompany the uh, Rikyu embassies too. And the first one, it was limited to Kyoto, but then from the second one to Edo. So these embassies were very, very important from, uh, for Satsuma since the beginning. And uh, as I mentioned before, when the back for a certain point said that uh, uh, they, didn't, they didn't need other embassies anymore, Satsuma wrote a number of petitions to the shogunate. They said that these embassies were important for the prestige of Japan, and also that uh, uh, it emphasized the prestige of the Rikyuan kingdom uh, within the Chinese interstate system. And the Shimazu told the shogunate that Rikyu occupies the second rank uh, after only 
Korea in the Chinese, in the Qing uh, tributary system. So it was very important for the shogunate, uh, for the shogunate's prestige to receive uh, an embassy from such an important kingdom within East Asia. So uh, Satsuma uh, tried hard to make these embassies to continue. But then, during the Bakumatsu period, again, also from Satsuma's perspective, we can see a shift in his perception of those embassies. Of course, those embassies remain very, very important from a political point of view, especially since from the early 18th, uh, 18th century, any time the shogunate increased uh, in rank the Satsuma's daimyo. So it was very important from a political point of view. But during the 1850s, the, the Satsuma daimyo had very important internal uh, political pro problems. And at that point, the Satsuma daimyo, in many of one occasions, asked the shogunate to postpone the Rikuyon embassies. So at that, point, at that point, the Shimazu began to see those embassies as, uh, um, of course, they were still very important, but something that they uh, should postpone in case they had more uh, important problems to uh, prioritize. And so in two occasions, it asked the shogunate to uh, delay, to postpone those embassies. If we think of Satsuma's position in the 1860s, particularly in comparison to the, the, the Bakufu, I mean, I was reminded of the Paris World's Fair in 1867, where Satsuma even sends its own delegation and kind of presents itself as this autonomous country. Do the Ryukyuan embassies get kind of caught up in this competition between Satsuma and the Bakufu during the Bakumatsu years? I think you, you touched a very important point with this question, because in the 1860s, uh, we do not have a, a Rikyo embassy. We do not have a Satsuma that asked for a new Rikyo embassy. But if we see how the, uh, the Satsuma's mission present introduced itself in Paris, uh, it introduced itself as a, a mission from Rikyu. So again, when Satsuma had very, very impo important political problems with the shogunate, he didn't think to uh, send a new Rikyuan embassy to Edo, but he thought to send a Rikyuan embassy to Paris. So still, in some way, the Rikyuan embassies were still important for, uh, for Satsuma, and it used the Rikyuan uh, subordination to Satsuma in order to present the Satsuma's lord as uh, the king of uh, Rikyu. Uh, in front of uh, the Western uh, powers. If I may add one thing about this event, it is well known about Satsuma's actions in uh, Paris. What it is little known, it is uh, Bakufu's response. And Bakufu at that point sent uh, a very important uh, official in Paris armed with a collection of documents uh, to be translated into French and English and to be submitted to the uh, Western government. Many of those uh, documents were about the relations between Japan and uh, Ryukyu. And through these documents, Shogunate wanted to show to the Western powers that Satsuma was not the king of Ryukyu because Ryukyu had its own king, a king who was subordinate to the Bakufu. So we can see that the Shunin, until the very end, tried to explain to the Westerners its relations with Rikyu. And in this document, he made clear that Rikyu was subordinate also to China, but the subordination to Japan was the more politically substantial. And also, in this case, the utmost piece of evidence that the shogunate used to demonstrate the subordination of Rikyu were the Rikyu embassies to Edo. In fact, uh, the shogunate gave his official uh, in Paris a very important document related to the Rikyu embassies to Japan. 
so uh, it explains in detail uh, the political significance of these embassies and it uses it to negotiate with the Western powers. And uh, those negotiations occurred in late 1867. So we have a situation in which Yoshinobu had already returned his uh, political power to the emperor in uh, Japan. But uh, in Paris and in London, the Bakufu uh, officials were still trying to show that Shogun was the sole sovereign in Japan and that the Satsuma was not independent. And speaking of these Western powers, I mean, the, the story of Perry coming to Japan and forcing Japan open in 1853 is so well known. But what we often forget is that Perry also went to the Ryukyuan kingdom and was doing separate negotiations with the Ryukyus, right? Yes. And uh, the result of those negotiations uh, was an important treaty with Ryukyu. Before speaking about the treaty, I would like to speak about uh, the, negoci the uh, negotiations between Perry and the Baku. Because they are well known, we know that when, when Perry asked uh, the shogunate uh, to open a port in Ryukyu, the shogunate said that Ryukyu is very uh, distant and we cannot discuss its opening. The problem it is that if we see uh, Perry's version of this statement, we can see that uh, he wrote, Ryukyu is a very distant country and uh, the opening of its port cannot be discussed by the shogunate. So we have a very different documentation about the same statement. I would like to point out that the shogunate did not use, did, didn't use the word country for the queue. It only said that it, is, it was a distant territory. And at the same time, the shogunate soon immediately after this statement wrote that also Matsumae was very distant on the frontier and uh, it, it was also subordinate uh, to the uh, Matsumai family. So in some way, when it negotiated with Perry, the, the Bakufu did not declare Rikyu as a, a completely independent country from Japan. It only said that it was very distant. But it was this statement that, in the first place, Perry's request to open Rikyu that prompted the shogunate to change its foreign policy toward Rikyu. I will mention very, very briefly, until that point, so especially until the 1840s, the shogunate declared to the Western world, especially with a letter to the Dutch king, that Rikyu as Korea was a kingdom with which Japan maintained diplomatic relations. So it was defined as Sushi no Kuni. But uh, when Perry asked the opening of Rikyu, Japan changed its position and said that Rikyu was a distant territory. So we can see already a shift in its foreign policy. But then, after Paris, and it was only after Paris that the shogunate began a state to the Western powers that Rikyu was a zokoku, a kingdom essentially subordinate to Japan. In fact, after the negotiation with Perry, the most important senior consul, Abe Masahiro, wrote a very important diplomatic series of questions that the Americans might ask about Japanese European relations, and he suggested the better, the most appropriate answers that the Bakufu's officials uh, should reply in case of those questions. And uh, basically, he said from that point on, so from 1854, we should say that Ryukyu is subordinate to both. China and to Japan. But if we see uh, in detail all those suggestions, we can say that Abe in some way wanted to show to the West that the subordination of uh, Ryukyu to Japan was the more substantial. And uh, this is a very important document because 10 years later, it was uh, the British government that for the first time asked the shogunate. So, there are a lot of contradictions in what you had been saying about your relation with Ryukyu. What are your true relations with Ryukyu? So at that point, the shogunate had no choice but to 
submit a formal reply to the British. And on that occasion, the Shogunate wrote a very important letter and uh, for the first time declared to the Western world that Ryukyu was subordinate to both China and to Japan. But then the Shogunate also attached a very long, important document in which it explained in detail its relations with uh, Ryukyu. And uh, the most important uh, piece of evidence that it used uh, in this document to show the subordination of Ryukyu to Japan were again, the reclamation missions to Edo. And uh, if we compare the content of this 1862 formal letter from the Shogunate to the British and the content of Abe Masahiro's guide and also of uh, other backfoot officials that immediately after the negotiation with Paris submitted the reports on the relation between Japan and Ryukyu, we can see a very close similarity. So in other words, after Paris asked the opening of Ryukyu, the Shogunate had an internal debate about the Rikyuan-Japanese relation, and the result of, the, of that debate uh, affected, continued to affect the foreign policy of the shogunates toward the Westerners uh, until the very uh, end of the Tokugawa uh, period. So from my point of view, um, the uh, negotiations between Perry and the shogunate marked a major turning point in the Bakos foreign policy uh, toward uh, Ryukyu. But uh, the last thing that I'd like to uh, add, it is a uh, until the end of the uh, Tokugawa period, the shogunate did not intend to annex, to incorporate Ryukyu. It only began to say, to state to the Western that Ryukyu was a vassal state of uh, Japan, which was a very uh, an important change with respect uh, to the past. But still, if uh, I would like to argue that if we want to fully understand what happened later, so during the major period when the, the major government decided to annex this foreign kingdom, we need to start our uh, investigation from the Bakumatsu period, when the precondition of this annexation took shape. At the same time, it is important also to say that the shogunate never told the Qing of its true relations with the Rikyu. So, on the one hand, it was uh, shifting, it was changing its position, its policy toward the foreigners, and it began to, to define Rikyu from a Tsushi no Kuni, from a, a kingdom with, with which to maintain only diplomatic relations to a kingdom which was subordinate to Japan. But it never told the Qing uh, that Rikyu was a subordinate state of Japan. runs through much of your research is this idea of of how the Meiji transition looks different when we l look at it through the lens of this Ryukyu and incorporation. And so as you were talking about before, so much of our understanding of the Meiji period is from this kind of metrocentric you know, focus on Tokyo, for example. And unfortunately, the story of the Ryukyu and incorporation kind of gets left behind a little bit. So when we do take that perspective of looking at the Meiji transition from peripheral areas such as Ryukyu, how do does that story start to look different? Yes, I'd like to uh, introduce a new element that so far uh, was almost neglected to the uh, earlier uh, scholarship. This small uh, kingdom in the 1850s concluded international treaties. In 1854, we have a period after uh, concluding a treaty with, uh, with Japan, went to the Q, and as you mentioned, negotiated with the Q and signed a treaty with the royal government. One year later, 
The French went to Ryukyu and signed a new treaty, and in 1859 also the Dutch, a Dutch mission, went to Ryukyu and signed a treaty with Ryukyu. The Ryukyu officials drafted their treaties in classical Chinese, so in Kanbu, and dated them according to the Chinese calendar. So if we see those treaties, there is no reference to the subordinate status of Ryukyu to Japan. So if we only see those documents, we can see that Ryukyu was independent of Japan during the 1850s. And in fact, uh, the shogunate had known about those treaties. It, it said that uh, since Japan had already stipulated, had already signed a treaty with the US, the treaty with Ryukyu was not harmful with Japan. So it, it, is, it becomes clear that the shogunate uh, tacitly approved those uh, treaties. When in 1878, so we are, uh, we, we are in the very last phase of the shogun, immediately before the establishment of Okinawa province, the Ryukyuan officials in uh, Tokyo asked for the help of the Western powers that had signed treaties with Ryukyu, so uh, the help of the US, of France, and uh, at that point we do not have the Dutch in Tokyo, we have uh, their representatives, the British uh, diplomats. And when uh, the Rikino official asked uh, for the help of these great powers, uh, they use those treaties as uh, a means, uh, as uh, tools in order to encourage those Westerners, those Westerners' help, uh, in order that they prevent uh, Japan from annexing Rikyu. So those treaties were very, very important for uh, the Rikyuan government, even though at the beginning when Perry went to Rikyu, uh, the Rikyuan official didn't want to sign uh, a treaty because they said that they were very, very afraid of uh, the Qing's uh, response since they introduced themselves any time they dealt with the, with the Western as a tributary of the, the Qing Empire. So at this point, I would like to address the, a question that so far has not been duly addressed by Erich So how was, or let's say, how did it come about that the main government was able next Rikyu, uh, despite uh, the existence of these treaties that uh, in a certain way uh, proved Rikyuan diplomatic capability independently from uh, Japan. And uh, in order to answer this question, I begin in the first place to look at all the Japanese documents relating to the Rikyu Shobun, and at a certain point I said that there was something missing, that uh, during the negotiations between uh, for example, the foreign minister Soejima Taneomi and uh, the American diplomat Charles DeLong, we do not have DeLong's version. In other, wo in other uh, words, so far, the Western powers uh, document and the Western powers uh, stance toward the annexation processes had not taken into consideration. And uh, that's, that's one of uh, my starting points. And at that point, I began to investigate uh, the American, the British and the French documents in order to see uh, this uh, event. So the annexation of Ricure from a more, from a, from a broader perspective, let's say from a global uh, point of view. And um, this point, I need to make a very important clarification. These treaties were signed in the 1850s, but only the US government ratified the treaty with Ryukyu soon after the stipulation. In 1855, the American government ratified the treaty, so the Ryukyu American Treaty is a legal binding document. The French and the Dutch, after the uh, signing of the treaty, went to Ryukyu 
and they showed to the Ryukyuan government they uh, wanted that their treaties observed by the government. So the Ryukyuan understood that from the Dutch and the French point of view, those treaties were very, very important. But in 1867, when the Satsuma mission in Paris told the Westerners that Ryukyu was uh, a dependency of Satsuma, at that point, the Dutch and the French government consulted each other, and in the end, they decided not to ratify the treaty with the Ryukyu. As I mentioned before, the Dutch left Tokyo very early. They had uh, economic and political problems, so we do not have the Dutch in uh, Tokyo during the early Meiji uh, period. But we have the French. And the French, as I said, uh, the French government did not ratify the treaty with Ryukyu, but it is important to observe that the French government, in the end, eventually, did not inform the Ryukyuan government of its decision. So, during the early Meiji period, from the Ryukyuan perspective, as well as from the perspectives of the Meiji government and of the Qing, the Ryukyuan-French treaty was a legal binding treaty. And uh, therefore, it was very important the French stance toward the annexation of Tokyo to Japan from all the three partners involved. So, from my point of view, the French it is, uh, were not only a mere bystander, but their actions were very, very important for the annexation of uh, Rikyu to Japan. If we look back uh, at history, we know that uh, the stipulation of a treaty does not assure a small kingdom of its independence. However, the treaties that uh, those Westerners signed with Rikyu are very, very important because they prove that uh, Rikyu acted independently of Japan and that uh, the annexation process is not something limited between uh, Ryukyu, China, and Japan, as it had been considered so far. But also it involved uh, the Western powers that concluded those agreements. And the reason it is why, because only those Western powers could minimize the importance of those agreements. It was not the major government that could minimize the importance of their treaties. So it is very important why the US and the French eventually chose to ignore the importance of their agreements. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.